0: Well, go ahead and take your Bibles and turn with me to the book of Ruth. Ruth chapter 1. Last week we began looking at the amazing untold sufferings of our dear sister Naomi. Last week we saw two very crucial and important truths that we must understand in the midst of our suffering. Number one, God is unfailingly good that His character is what we cling to in the midst of suffering. He is good. He has good purposes in mind. And number two, we interpret our suffering in light of the cross. When we ask the question, why, and we don't know what the answer is, we can understand the goodness of our God, the character of our God, as we cling to the cross. We cling to the goodness of our God as demonstrated by Him giving us His own Son. And that the promise is, along with His Son, He will give us all things. He will freely give us. It's easy for Him to accomplish what He wants to accomplish in the midst of our suffering. Our pain will ultimately manufacture maturity. The crisis around us conditions our character, and difficulties develop depth in our being. But we said last week that in the midst of the suffering, behind a frowning providence, God is smiling. And verse 6 in Ruth chapter 1, we begin to see the corners of God's face turn upward. We begin to see the smiling providence come true. So five verses of deep despair, and then verse 6 says there's a, there's a, a good purpose that's happening, and we're going to start seeing the smiling providence of God. So if you have your Bibles, Ruth chapter 1, I want to read verses 6 Through eighteen, because that's really the next section that we're going to look at. And I'm going to ask you to stand again in honor of the reading of God's word as we give careful attention to every word in this passage. Ruth chapter 1, verse 6. Then Naomi arose with her daughters-in-law that she might return from the land of Moab, for she had heard in the land of Moab that the Lord had visited his people in giving them food. So she departed from the place where she was and her two daughters-in-law with her, and they went on the way to return to the land of Judah. And Naomi said to her two daughters-in-law, go, return, each of you to her mother's house. May the Lord deal kindly with you as you have dealt with the dead and with me. May the Lord grant that you may find rest each in the house of her husband. Then she kissed them, and they lifted up their voices and they wept. And they said to her, "'No, but we will surely return with you to your people.' But Naomi said, "'Return, my daughters. Why should you go with me? Have I yet sons in my womb, that they may be your husbands? Return, my daughters. Go, for I am too old to have a husband. If I said I have hope that even if I should have a husband tonight and also bear sons, would you therefore wait until they were grown?' Would you therefore refrain from marrying? No, my daughters, for it is harder for me than for you. For the hand of the Lord has gone forth against me. And they lifted up their voices and they wept again. And Orpah kissed her mother-in-law, but Ruth clung to her. Then she said, Behold, your sister-in-law has gone back to her people and to her gods. Return after your sister-in-law. But Ruth said, do not urge me to leave you or turn back from following you, because where you go, I will go. Where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people, my people, and your God, my God. Where you die, I will die, and there I will be buried. Thus may the Lord do to me, and worse, if anything but death parts you and me." And when Naomi saw that she was determined to go with her, she said, no more. Father, these verses are profound. So I I pray just practically that you would elongate our time, supernaturally give us an ability to dive deep into these verses and to see authorial intent, why these verses are here for us to see, to read, to study. God, give us careful attention to these words, to every single conversation, all of the dialogue that takes place in these verses. And Father, I pray that we would be awestruck by Ruth. I pray that her faith would be on display in such a way this morning that we would see faith that we would aspire to. That we would see the nature of true saving faith. That we would see what conversion really looks like. What true salvation really looks like. And that we would walk away changed ourselves, but also with the message of the gospel on our lips to encourage others to cling to Christ. So Holy Spirit, do what you love to do. Show us the magnificent glory of Jesus. That he is worthy of all blessing and honor and glory. He is worthy of our affections. He is worthy of our attention. He is worthy of our life. And He deserves it. Open our eyes to behold wonderful things from Your law. We pray in the name of Jesus. Amen. You may be seated. You can see in these verses, there are three conversations that take place. And so that's what we're going to use as our outline. Three conversations. But each conversation has a little bit of a different emphasis. So the first one... Naomi's going to present the crisis before her daughters-in-law. The second one, she's going to give them the crossroads of of the choice that they must make. And then the third one, we're going to see the nature of conversion. So this is our outline for this morning. First, the crisis, verses 6 through 10. But before we get to the bad news of the crisis that is in front of Naomi's uh, two precious daughters-in-law, we see good news. We see very good news. Verse 6 Then Naomi arises with her daughters-in-law that she might return from the land of Moab. Uh, Return to Bethlehem. Go back to Bethlehem. Um, That word return in Hebrew is the word that we get repentance from. To turn, to do a a 180, to go back to where you should have been. And maybe there's even an emphasis of the uh, lack of wisdom in Elimelech moving his family to Moab here. I don't want to take it too far because it's just let's go back home. Maybe there's a hint there that that really was a foolish decision. But she says, I want to go back. And why? Verse 6 tells us, because she had heard in the land of Moab that the Lord had visited his people. There's so much there. The Lord, so that's Yahweh, covenant name. You can see it in all capital letters in verse 6. Yahweh, he he made a promise with his people, and he's not going to go back on this promise. And even this uh, reversal of the famine is an aspect and a working out of that promise. The covenant keeping God is keeping his covenant yet again. And notice who's behind it. The Lord visiting his people. This isn't just the weather changed and there's now crops being grown. The ground is producing. No, it's God is behind it. God's the one who's behind it. And he has visited his people. That's very specific Hebrew language. Whenever God visits his people, something dramatic happens. And The Old Testament, you see God visiting Abraham and Sarah, and Sarah is able to conceive. You see God visiting uh, Hannah when she is able to conceive and give birth in 1 Samuel. So something amazing happens, and even the irony, the play on words here, where God's going to visit his people, uh, a word that in Hebrew, the, the Hebrew mindset would instantly think of giving the gift of being able to conceive, he gave it to people who were struggling to conceive, had 10 years of infertility. So again, just a beautiful story. The way that this storyteller is telling these events is just magnificent. But there's another thing that's in here, or I should say there's one thing that's omitted from these verses. And that's how the news got to Moab. It just says that she heard that the famine's gone and that God had visited his people and given them food, but we don't hear how. Who told her? How did she hear? But that's exactly the pattern of this book. How did Elimelech die? We don't know. Why did Elimelech die? We don't know. And to make a conjecture, I believe is dangerous. To say he died because he was disobedient. Well, disobedience produces death. Yes, but you can't always trace it back there. Why did Malon and Kilion die? We don't know. How did they die? We don't know. This is the pattern. We're never told those things. Just we're told that they happened. And so here, we're told that somehow word got to Naomi that the famine's gone. How did word get there? Who was the spokesperson that told her? Why did they have any reason to go tell her? We don't know. We're just told that it happened. So, verse seven, she departs from the place where she was in Moab and her two daughters with her. And they went on the way to return to the land of Judah. This is a common uh, cultural issue You wouldn't just say goodbye at your front door. You would walk them out the front door, and usually you'd walk them very far, whether it's out of the town or even to the border of where they're going to ensure their safety. And so they walk her over to uh, wherever this border might be or wherever the edge of the town is. And Naomi stops them in verse 8. And this is our first conversation. She speaks to her two daughters-in-law, and she says, go, return. Now you go back. I'm going back. Now you go back each of you to her mother's house. Why does it say her mother's house? There's, usually the Hebrew expression would be, go back to where your father's house is. Um, is this because their fathers have died? No, I don't think so. They're, they're young ladies, so I don't think it's because their fathers have perished. It's a very specific phrase to say, go back to your mother's house. It's a strange statement, but it's a very specific Hebrew expression used three other times in the Old Testament, and it's used in reference to love, to getting married, and to bearing children. You could almost say to your mother's chamber or to your mother's bedroom where you can plan out a wedding. Go back to a place where your mom's going to help you in finding another spouse, in getting married, planning a wedding, and then having another child or having a child at all because Ruth and Orpah at this time had not had children. This is a, a, a phrase where Naomi is saying, go home so that you can start a new life. Get married, have children, just go home. Go to a place where your mom can help you find a new spouse. May the Lord deal kindly with you as you have dealt with the dead and with me. May the Lord grant you, verse 9, that you would find rest each in the house of her husband. So there is the specific statement. Go back to your mother's house so that you can also find a husband. I want you to be able to get married. Your your husband's passed away. That's a bitter thing to go through. And I want you to be able to get married and start a family. But notice what Naomi says. This is profound. She is asking. She is praying. When she says, may God do this, may God do that," she's praying to God. She's praying and she's banking on and she's hoping on the sovereignty of God to work in the lives of her daughters-in-law. If God is sovereign, which Naomi completely believes that he is, then it makes perfect sense for him to act, to ask him to act. If God's not sovereign, then why ask him for anything? If he can't do anything to help me, then why even pray? Many people say, if God is sovereign, why pray? Thinking that somehow, since God is in control of everything, we should just let him do whatever he wants to do. But in my mind, I would ask the exact opposite. If God's not sovereign, why would I have any reason to pray? Why would I have any reason to bring a request before him? Because I'm asking him to do something that he cannot do. But if he is sovereign, and since he is sovereign... We can say, God, please, would you work? You have control of moving every single molecule in the universe. Would you work? Prayer is an acknowledgement that God is there. He's sovereign. He's working. But that's not the amazing thing to me about what Naomi's saying. Naomi is saying, may God deal with you kindly. She's asking not only for God to work, but she's asking this of the God that she is going to say worked suffering in her life. She says, may the Lord deal kindly with you, knowing that she's going to say the Lord has dealt bitterly with me. Notice who's asking God to work. It's the one from whom God has taken things, very recently taken things away away and brought her into despair. But she says, may God deal kindly. May God grant. He took things away. This is what Naomi is telling us this morning. There is a God who is in complete control of everything that goes on in your world, and he gives and he takes away, and his name is to be blessed. So she says, may the Lord grant that you may find rest. And she kisses them, and they lift up their voices, and they weep. But they say, no. We will surely return with you, to your people. We're not not going back and leaving you alone. Naomi presents the crisis here. If you go with me, you don't have any hope of getting married, and we're going to expand on that further in the second point, but you have no hope. So go back where there will be no crisis. Go back where life will be just the way it was before you met me. I mean, fill out this language with sanctified imagination. Naomi's saying, hey, Orpah and Ruth... Have you enjoyed your life with me? Just think about your life before hanging out with me, before you met me, before you met my sons. Think about your life. You had no despair, no problem, no depression, no suffering. And then you meet me, and everything starts to go badly. So just get me out of the picture. Go home and start your life again. Here's Naomi wrestling in front of her daughters in law but she's doing it in a way that, as we're going to see, Ruth is going to pick up on, and she's going to trust in the God that Naomi's wrestling with. So as we come to the end of this first point, I, I want to encourage you with the reality of how Naomi is going about sharing God, even in the midst of her suffering. I believe you and I can do this. We need to do this with other people around us. This is evangelism on display without evangelizing the people around you. She's not going through the Roman road. She's not going through the four spiritual laws, but she is sharing God with her daughters-in-law. How? She's praying for them. She's telling them that she's praying for them. Do that. Even with your unsaved family members who don't think God exists, say, I'm praying for you. Pray with them publicly. Don't feel awkward about that. They're the ones that should feel awkward. They don't believe in a God who has obviously clearly, magnificently displayed himself. Pray for them. Talk to them about God. Talk to them. Be natural in your conversation. May God deal with you kindly. May God help you. May God encourage you. Show concern for their needs. Notice Naomi is concerned for the specific practical needs of her daughters-in-law. And this isn't some hyper-spiritual idea here. She's saying, I I want you to be happy in life. I want you to enjoy marriage and have children. I I want those things for you. Just natural concern for needs, for desires, for hopes. But in doing that, Naomi is God-centered in her interpretation of life circumstances. She's not man-centered. Do that with people around you. Be God-centered in your interpretation of what's happening in your life. And openly share God's work in your life Both the good and the bad, both coming from the hand of God. Openly share both. God has been so kind and gentle in giving me this. This has been hard. God has given me a hardship. It's from his hand, and he's in control, and he is good, but this is hard. But it's from God's hand. Do both. That will confound people who don't have an understanding of who God is, and maybe they'll ask questions. Maybe they'll press into the character of God. So she presents the crisis before her daughters-in-law. Number two, verse 11 through 14, she's going to move them down the crossroads. This is really where they're going to have to make a decision. Verse 11, she says, return my daughters. After they say, no, we're going back home with you. She says, no, return my daughters. And then she asks, why should you go with me? Why should you go with me? There's no reason. There's no reason for you to go with me. This is one of those questions that isn't supposed to be answered you don't want to have Orpah and Ruth engage with this to say, well, now that you make the point, there's really no reason in doing this. It's one of those questions like when your wife says to you, you're not really wearing that outside, are you? They just don't answer the question. Take the hint and move on with your life. She says, don't go with me. and Then she says, here's all the reasons. She stacks them up. Have I yet sons in my womb that they may be your husbands? The answer is no. I can't give you offspring to let them be your husbands. Even if I could give you offspring, I don't even know if they'd be sons. Maybe they're going to be daughters. Maybe I just spit out seven girls. Well, sorry guys, keep waiting. We'll have sons in no time at all. No, she says, I don't have kids in my womb. Literally, in the Hebrew, there's a a word for womb and there's a word for gut or belly. She uses the word for gut or belly. I don't have kids in my gut. You can almost sense the... Um, the almost impatience here of, guys, don't be unreasonable. I don't have kids in me. Come on. Go back home. Return, my daughters, verse 12. Go. Let me give you another reason why you should go. I'm too old to have a husband. She's probably in her late 50s, or early 60s at this point. I'm too old to have a husband. And then let me give you another one. Let's say I could have a husband tonight, and I bear sons tonight. Would you therefore wait? until they get old enough to marry? No. She says, she answers her own questions. No. No, I have three reasons why you should just go back now. No, my daughters. And my Bible says, middle of verse 13, because it is harder for me than for you. Literally, it's, it's more bitter for me. This is, this is more bitter for me. Why is it more bitter for her? Because the hand of the Lord has gone forth against me. These are bitter moments for her. Not bitter in the sense of somebody wronged her and she's angry, but these are are not happy moments. These are harsh. They they don't taste good. But don't miss the faith behind the complaint. We're going to talk about Naomi next week because uh, we're going to finish out chapter one next week and we're going to see what Naomi says. So We're going to spend a lot of time on Naomi next week. But we have to tackle this verse when she says, the hand of the Lord has gone forth against me. Some people would say, Naomi's wrong. She's dead wrong. And here's why she's wrong. It's the devil who did these things, not God. Well, I guess the devil's a lot more powerful than we thought he was. Maybe he's working autonomous on his own. No, it's not the devil. Even if the devil is the one who's working this out, it's still from the hand of God that the devil's allowed to do what he's doing. So this isn't the devil. This is God behind this suffering, behind the circumstances. And as we talked about last week, the most difficult aspect of this suffering is there's never an explanation why. There's never an explanation why. Naomi says, I know God's doing it. I don't know why God's doing it, but he's the one who's behind this. C.S. Lewis says in The Problem of Pain, we want not so much a father in heaven as a grandfather in heaven whose plan for the universe was such that it might be said at the end of every day, a good time was had by all. I should very much like to live in a universe which was governed on such lines, but since it is abundantly clear that I don't and since I have reason to believe nevertheless that God is love, I conclude that my conception of love needs correction. The problem of reconciling human suffering with the existence of a God who loves is only insoluble so long as we attach trivial meaning to the word love and limit his wisdom by what seems to us to be wise. I believe Naomi would agree with that statement. Naomi says, God's hand has gone forth against me, and I don't know what he's doing, These are bitter circumstances, and I'm not liking them right now. But God is wiser than I am, so he must have his reasons. And I'm just going to trust his reasons. I don't need everything to be explained. I would love for that to happen, but I don't need it. He's sovereign, he's good, and I can rest in that. This verse in verse 13 does not trouble me one bit. Her saying, God's hand has gone forth against me, that does not trouble me one bit. I agree with what she's saying, and as we're going to see in the next section, I I don't think that she's doing something that's sinful or wrong in what she's saying. She's gone through hard circumstances, and she is being very, very sound in her doctrinal statements about the character of God, which is what you need in the moments of suffering. What is troubling for me, though, as I read this, is why is Naomi encouraging these two girls to go back to Moab where she knows they're going to start worshiping the god Chemosh again. Why why encourage them to go back to a pagan land? That's more troubling for me. She says explicitly, go back to your people and go back to your gods. Why would you ever encourage somebody to go back to idolatry? There's a number of reasons why I think she says this and I think that the author puts this here in the story. Number one, the dialogue is showing Naomi's misery. It completely shows Naomi's misery. She's basically saying, look, you have seen my God and how he works. And sometimes he deals us a very bitter hand. Do you want to follow this God? She's, She's putting that on display. Your God, Chemosh, might require terrible things of you, but maybe you feel like he gives you reasons and I don't have any reasons. She's telling them, Through this statement, go back that she's wrestling with certain aspects of what God is doing. Don't stick with me. Everything's going wrong, and my God's behind that. Number two, the second reason why she says this is because, as you know, Boaz is going to show up as the kinsman redeemer. There is hope back home for Ruth and for Orpah. They could come back home and be redeemed by relatives. Remember, Boaz is going to be the ultimate kinsman redeemer, but he has to run it by another person. So there could have been two men for her daughters-in-law to come, come back home, marry these two relatives. It'll work out. There's hope back home. Come back with me. But she doesn't say that. Why doesn't she say it? Because she doesn't see it. Why doesn't she see it? Because her circumstances are so difficult that she has lost all hope. There's no hope. Why come with me? There's no hope back home. What a lesson for us that in our suffering, sometimes, and I don't want to minimize her suffering because it is incredibly severe, but sometime in our suffering, we can exaggerate our hopelessness. She's not hopeless. And we'll see this on display next week in the following verses. She's not hopeless. There's a lot of hope back home for her and for her daughters-in-law. But she can't see it. She can't see it. A third reason why she says just go back home is because the author is going to help us see that Ruth's faithfulness to Naomi is amazing. He wants to put on such stark contrast the fact that Naomi's saying go home, there's no reason for you to be with me and Ruth's going to say I'll stick with you even though there's no reason. But here's... The reason, if you boil it all down, those are three reasons for why she's saying, just go back home, even to your people and even to your gods, go back home. But here's the fundamental foundational reason of why she's saying this and I believe why this text is in the scriptures. She is placing before her daughters-in-law the formula of Christianity. She's placing before them the ultimate eternal crossroads. This is the cost of discipleship. She's saying to her daughters-in-law, girls, girls, You either get everything minus Yahweh back in Moab. You can get your family, you can get your husband, you can get your kids, you can get everything, but not my God in Moab. Or you can have my God in Bethlehem and nothing. Which will it be? Which will it be? Which do you want? Can I ask you that question? I believe Naomi is looking over her daughters-in-law to us this morning. Which will it be for you? You can have anything that you want in this life minus God. Go ahead, have whatever you want, just don't get God. Or you can deny yourself, take up your cross, follow him, get God, and nothing else. Which would seem better to you? That's what Naomi's saying. Which do you want? Which seems better to you? And you know, if you're a follower of Jesus Christ, you know the reality is, oh, the things that I'm saying no to, I wouldn't ultimately even want those things. One of my favorite Christian artists is a musician by the name of Michael Card. Many of you know who he is. He wrote a song called The Things That We Leave Behind. It's one of my favorite songs. It's very beautifully crafted. It's excellent musically speaking. But the way that he writes the lyrics, I just want to tell you the first verse. He says, there sits Simon, Simon Peter, so foolishly wise, proudly he's tending his nets. Then Jesus calls and the boats drift away and all that he owns he forgets. But more than the nets he abandoned that day, he found that his pride was soon drifting away, and it's hard to imagine the freedom we find from the things that we leave behind. It's hard to imagine the freedom that we find from the things that we leave behind. That's why Naomi says, which is it? You can go home and get everything back to normal. You just won't have Yahweh, or you can take Yahweh And she presents a very bleak picture to her daughters-in-law. Yahweh and nothing. Which will will it be? Verse 14. We know what it will be. They lifted up their voices, they wept again, and Orpah kissed her mother-in-law, but Ruth clung to her. That word, but, tells us what happened when Orpah kissed her mother-in-law. It's two sides, right? Ruth is going to cling, Orpah is going to kiss, What's the kiss? It's a kiss of goodbye. It's a kiss of I'm leaving. It's a kiss of I've seen the formula, I've worked the math, and I don't want to go back with you. Orpa kisses and leaves. This is the first time that we ever see these two girls act separately in this book. They've always lived in unity together, but Orpah is looking to the future. She sees Judah, Bethlehem, as a place where I have nothing but I'll get this God Yahweh. And then she looks behind her and she sees Moab where I have everything and I don't have to follow this God that sometimes deals a bitter hand. So I'm going to go back home. She walks away and she completely walks out of the scriptures, by the way. We never read her name ever again. She made her choice and she leaves. Ruth makes her choice. Verse 14, she clings to Naomi. Cling, that's the word in Genesis two twenty-four. Uh, the, the husband and the wife will be joined together. Leave and cleave. Leave your family, cleave, join to that new person, that new relationship. That's the word here. She has left Moab and she's cleaving to Naomi. And that leads us to point number three. We have our crisis, we have the crossroads, we have the decisions made. Verses 15 through 18 we have conversion. We have conversion. She says, behold, Naomi says, behold, your sister-in-law has gone back to her people and to her gods. Return after your sister-in-law. Go back to her people. Go back to your people. Go back to Moab. Go back to your gods. But Ruth says, do not urge me to leave you. Don't urge me to turn back from following you. I'm going with you. Naomi had painted a very dark, very bleak picture. Ruth took her hand and said, let's walk into that picture. I'll go with you. Let's walk down that road together. Notice, there's no advantage to going with Naomi. Ruth has zero advantage. She's a Moabite, so there's no husband that she's going to be able to get in Bethlehem. They didn't leave during the famine. They said, no, we're not going to Moab. Moab is a pagan nation, an idolatrous nation. We're not going to marry them, and we're not going to live there. No future Naomi is destitute, no economic support. It's not like she's going to be able to go back and get her retirement package and they'll all be okay. And Ruth is going to adopt Naomi's God as her God, which is amazing given Naomi's suffering and her perspective that God's hand had gone forth against her. I'll take that God. The bottom line for Ruth that faced Orpah as well is, do you take God plus nothing in Bethlehem or do I take God, or I, I, everything minus God in Moab? And here in verse 16, we see the heart of Ruth. We see her first, these are the first words that Ruth speaks, and we see the hand of God's providence beginning to work in an amazing way, in a glorious, beautiful, gentle, blessing way. She says, don't urge me to leave, verse 16, don't urge me to turn back. Because where you go, I will go. Wherever your travels take you, I will be your constant companion. I'm always going to follow with you. Where you lodge, I will lodge. Wherever your home is, that's going to be my home. Your people shall be my people and your God, my God. So your nation's my nation, your family, your relatives, your tribe. All of those people are going to be my people and your God I'm adopting as my God. I reject my gods. I will follow Yahweh as the one true God. That would be enough to be amazing. But verse 17, she goes on, where you die, I will die. So I'm never going to leave your side. We'll die in the same location together. And then I will be buried there. So she could have said, I promise to stick with you until you die, and then I'm going back home. But she says, I'm going to stick with you until you die, and then I'm going to die where you have died. I'm going to be buried where you are buried. I'm going to stay with you. This is a promise that is made for life and beyond that of Naomi. Ruth is probably around 30 years old at this time, and she says, for the rest of my life, the rest of your life, and beyond in my grave, it's going to be with you. And then she says this, verse 17, Thus may the Lord do to me and worse if anything but death parts you and me. This is calling down a curse. This is an oath being made to call down a curse. May God curse me if I don't do this. We will be inseparable. Now, that's amazing at face value, just to look at those words and see the commitment that she's making to Naomi. But there's something there in these words that's a little deeper. It's a lot deeper. And I want to show it to you. Rarely do we ever use words on a screen during a sermon. I think that's good. I want you to not look up here. I want you to look down in your Bibles. But sometimes Bibles can make it hard to see the formula of what's happening. And you have to remember, Naomi is a Hebrew. The Moabites, though they are not Hebrews, they are still going to be speaking Aramaic and Hebrew. They're going to think in a Hebrew way. And so what Ruth is going to say, she's going to say five sentences, five lines, and she's going to use a very poetic way of describing. This is Hebrew poetry where she's going to stick in the middle a statement that corresponds to all the lines. In Hebrew, we'd call it a chiastic structure where there's kind of an X that flows through. This first line fits with the last line. The second line fits with the fourth line. And that third line in the middle governs everything. So I think, Amber, it's up here, yes? You can kind of see the indentation. First line, don't urge me to leave you or turn back from following you. And that line corresponds with this line. May the Lord do to me in worse, if anything but death parts me. I'm not leaving you. I'm not leaving you. I'm never going to turn my back on you, even in death. The second line, where you go, I'm going to go. Where you lodge, I will lodge. Where you die, I will die. And where you're buried, I will be buried. Those lines correspond. But the middle line is the line that governs those other two, those other four lines on the front and the back. And the middle line, if you can see it, your people shall be is in italics, right? What does that mean in Bible study? Do you remember? It means it's not there in the original language. So literally, your people, my people, your God, my God. Now why is this amazing to see? All throughout this statement, there are future tense verbs, right? Will be this, will be this, I will be this, we will do this. It's will be, will be, will be. What is the will be of the future anchored in? What governs the entirety of this statement? It's that middle verse. It's that middle sentence. It's that middle line. That middle line has no verbs in Hebrew. That middle line is a statement. It's not, you will be this, your people will be this, your God will be my God. It's saying, your people are my people right now in this moment. Your God is my God right now in this moment. And because your God is my God, everything else happens. It's the glue that holds these lines. Because your God is already my God, She's not converting now. This is a picture of what conversion looks like. She's already been converted. That's why she makes the decision. Your God is my God. Therefore, I'm not leaving you. She's not saying, I'm going to commit to you, Naomi, and therefore I have to commit to your God. She's saying, I commit to your God already. I've committed to him. He is my God. Therefore, I would never turn my back on you. So this is not primarily a declaration of Ruth's commitment to Naomi at all. She's saying, your people and your God are already mine. Therefore, I will never leave you. It's a display and a declaration of her allegiance to Yahweh and then the outworking of that allegiance to Naomi. I belong to you, God. Therefore, Naomi, I belong to you as well. This is conversion on display. This is the beautiful display of what salvation looks like. Remember the crossroads do you take God minus everything or do you take everything minus God? Which is it? And Orpah said, I'll take Moab. I'll take everything and just get God out of the picture. And Ruth said, I want God. Even if that means, especially when that means I don't get anything else, I want God. You take Jesus in conversion. You take Jesus and everything around you changes. He's that pearl, remember that? Beautiful parable. He's the pearl that you see the beauty in that pearl and you say, I'll give everything up. I'll sell everything to have that. Somewhere in Ruth's life, because of Naomi's testimony, because of Elimelech's testimony, because of Malon and Kilion's testimony, because of her background in Moab, somewhere Ruth tasted of the glory of God. And she said, I'd rather have Jesus than anything this world affords today. So she gives all that she is to gain everything that he is, and that's the gospel. That's the gospel. That's why this is what conversion looks like. And when Naomi sees that, Naomi sees Ruth has made her choice. Orpah clearly made her choice. I, I presented the formula. Orpah made her choice. I presented the formula. Ruth made her choice. And so, verse seventeen. When verse eighteen. When she saw that she was determined to go with her, literally in Hebrew, she ceased speaking. When you know somebody has tasted of the glory of God, there's no reason to wonder or question or doubt. Hmm, I wonder if they're saved. It's obvious. And Naomi knows, I'm not changing her mind. She's going to follow Yahweh. And so they go home together. And in their going home together, there are now two smiling providences in this section. It opened with a smiling providence. There's no more famine in the land. And it's its closing with a smiling providence. Ruth is saved. A bookend to these three conversations that the author of Ruth wants you to know, even in the hardships when God's hand goes forth against you, oh, there's good things around it. And God's working for your good. So, as we conclude... Let's wrap up verses 1 all the way through verse 18 because we've seen many different characters and some of them we're never going to see again. So identify yourself in the story thus far. Identify yourself. Elimelech. Are you Elimelech? Do you make choices? Do you make a plan without really trusting God? You kind of, your name might say, my God is king, but sometimes you think, ah, this might be the wisest thing, even though it's a very foolish thing. We have to step outside the bounds of God's covenant. My God is king, but I will only call on him when I've exhausted my options. Maybe you're Naomi. Maybe today you are Naomi. Frustrated, sorrowful, you're honest. Praise the Lord, you're honest, and you're struggling, but you're struggling. You're in despair. Maybe you're Orpah. You tried Christianity on for size. She did for 10 years. But it just doesn't really fit. She made a profession of faith, but she turns away. She believes that God's just going to interrupt her life, more than she would find acceptable. God's going to make her situation messy, her social relationships messy, her reputation messy. And so she decides, I'm going to go back to my God. She disappears over the horizon. She's never mentioned again in the Bible. Are you trying God on for size? Are you wondering if he's the right decision to make? Maybe you're like Orpah. Or maybe you're like Ruth. You trust God and you walk in faith. You trust wholeheartedly in the character of God. This is God's ideal woman. Faith in God that sees beyond bitter circumstances. Freedom from the securities and comforts of the world. Courage to venture out into the unknown and the strange. Radical commitment to the relationships that God has appointed in your life. She's the Proverbs 31 woman in verse 25. She looks into the future and she laughs at the coming storm ahead. It's okay. God's got this. She doesn't fear anything, First Peter chapter 3, verses 5 through 6. She doesn't fear anything in the future that might be frightening. As one commentator says, she possesses nothing. No deity has ever promised her blessing. No human being has ever come to her aid. She lives and chooses without a support system, and she knows that the fruit of her decision may well be the emptiness of rejection and perhaps even her death. She's committed herself to an older widow rather than search for a new husband. There is no more radical decision in all of the memories of Israel than hers. Why did she make it? She made it because she saw the glory of God and she says, I want that more than I want anything else. Brothers and sisters, that's my prayer for us as a church, That we would be constantly... That's why we get together. That's why we do Bible studies. We're constantly reminding each other God's better than anything this world has to offer. Don't cling to the things of this world. God's better. May we be like Ruth. Her faith seen beyond circumstances, beyond all earthly treasures, to cling to the greatest treasure of all. Father, that is our prayer this morning, that we would cling to Christ, who is our treasure. We love Him because he first loved us. We want to love him more, just in the way that Ruth does, given an option. She says, I take God, and maybe I don't get anything else alongside of him, but I take him. Father, I praise you for this study already, so much depth to these verses, so much implication for our lives. May we encourage each other with these truths, both now, this week at Bible study, and on in the future. And may you be glorified as we cling to Christ above all things. We pray it in the name of Jesus, our Savior. Amen.